I'm Sandra Unger. Thank you. I've worked here off and on about 100 years, done a bunch of different stuff. Also lead a ministry on the east side called The Lift. So I'm glad to be back with you here today. For our message today, we're going to be talking about stuffocating. I'm calling it stuffocating. And you probably figure out we're going to talk about stuff and drowning in stuff and what we do about our stuff. But before we read the scripture, I want to say that Greg said to me when he asked me, you know, I've been hitting him kind of hard, and so try to go easy on him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you can't come and pummel people, and then I'm supposed to come in and be fluffy, right? And then here's the scripture passage, and you tell me how we do this fluffy. Let's take a look at Luke 12, 13 to 21, and then I'm taking suggestions in terms of fluffiness. <laughs> Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. Does this sound fluffy to you? This is not a fluffy passage, so we're going to pray right now. God, use these words in each of our hearts. It's my prayer that we would go out of here more grounded in our identity in Christ and less in being defined by our possessions. But you know where each of us is with that right now. You know our needs, you know the struggles we've had, and so meet us each where we are. And we know that you have that gentle voice that prods us, and we know you have the prophetic voice that really challenges us. And so I pray that you would use the right voice for each of us to bring a message home, a message that will draw us closer to your heart. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I first heard this passage, I had a couple thoughts. The first one was, ooh, how exciting. This is a great passage with lots to, stay, to say, especially to our contemporary culture. Then the second one I thought is, oh, except Greg's already said it all. And this is a common theme here at Woodland Hills, greed and consumerism and these kind of things. And so what I need to hear from you is, have we resolved all these issues? Have we all dealt with our issues of stuff and we found our identity fully in Christ and we're not chasing after the next new deal, right? Does anybody have any more work to do with this? Okay, so Greg's not doing quite as good of a job as we thought maybe he was. I'm gonna let him know he needs to challenge you a little more to action. All right, a little more to do. Let's look at the background of the passage. Here's what's going on. In this day and age, rabbis or teachers served as mediators. And so it was normal for this guy to come up to Jesus and say, Rabbi, teacher, help me with this problem. The problem was he wasn't really looking for an arbitrator like he said. He was looking for an advocate. He says, tell my brother. Tell my brother to share the inheritance. And Jesus, knowing humanity as he does, knew that there was an issue of greed going on here. And so he tells the parable of the rich landowner. Now in this parable, the rich landowner doesn't have a name. He's a type of a person. He represents a greedy type of a person. And one thing to note about him is that in these few short verses, he manages to say, my crops, my barns, my grains, my goods, my soul. 
11 times he says, I or my. And so what we notice from, from that is that there's no hint of an awareness of stewardship, of maybe responsibility to those less fortunate than him. There's just self-interest. And he holds the view that's still very prevalent today, which is, I earn my money the old-fashioned way, I've worked hard, I deserve everything I've got, I'm gonna build bigger barns and store all my stuff, and everyone can look at my stuff and say, look at all the stuff he's got and what a hard worker, and everybody else should go out and do the same thing. Work hard and earn your stuff. So after he stores his grain, he kicks back and he says, oh, now I can eat and drink and be merry. But in the end, we find that it turns out nothing really belonged to him, and he even lost his own soul to his stuff. Now this is obviously a very challenging passage and not one that you can take lightly. People do like to skip it, totally, to avoid it, uh, to minimize it. My husband actually heard a sermon on this passage one time where the pastor's point was that um, he should have just added on to his barns because really the waste was that he tore the barns down and built whole new ones. Okay, we're gonna do a little better than that. We're gonna take it a little more seriously than that. And hopefully we can really leave with the vision of our future and our life as not consisting in the abundance of our possessions. First, let's take a look though at one of my very favorite videos. Uh, this was a video that I found online. Some friends told me about it. And it's 20 minutes long and you can find it at thestoryofstuff.com, storyofstuff.com. But we're just gonna take a few minutes of it that'll give us a good introduction to this idea of stuffocating. We have become a nation of consumers. Our primary identity has become that of being consumers, not mothers, teachers, farmers, but consumers. The primary way that our value is measured and demonstrated is by how much we contribute to this arrow, how much we consume, and do we. We shop and shop and shop, keep the materials flowing, and flow they do. Guess what percentage of total materials flow through this system is still in product or use six months after their date of sale in North America? 50%? 20? No, 1%. One. In other words, 99% of the stuff we harvest, mine, process, transport, 99% of the stuff we run through this system is trashed within six months. Now how can we run a planet with that level of materials throughput? It wasn't always like this. The average U.S. person now consumes twice as much as they did 50 years ago. Ask your grandma. In her day, stewardship and resourcefulness and thrift were valued. So how did this happen? Well, it didn't just happen. It was designed. Shortly after World War II, these guys were figuring out how to ramp up the economy. Retailing analyst Victor LeBeau articulated the solution that's become the norm for the whole system. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. President Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors chairman said that the American economy's ultimate purpose is to produce more consumer goods. More consumer goods? Our ultimate purpose? Not provide health care or education or safe transportation or sustainability or justice? Consumer goods? How did they get us to jump on board this program so enthusiastically? Well, two of their most effective strategies are planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence. Planned obsolescence is another word for designed for the dump. 
It means they actually make stuff to be useless as quickly as possible, so we'll chuck it and buy a new one. It's obvious with things like plastic bags and coffee cups, but now it's even big stuff. Mops, DVDs, cameras, barbecues, even everything. Even computers. Have you noticed that when you buy a computer now, the technology is changing so fast that in just a couple of years, it's actually an impediment to communication? I was curious about this, so I opened up a big desktop computer to see what was inside. And I found out that the piece that changes each year is just a tiny little piece in the corner. But you can't just change that one piece because each new version is a different shape. So you gotta chuck the whole thing and buy a new one. So I was reading industrial design journals from the 1950s when planned obsolescence was really catching on. These designers are so open about it. They actually discuss how fast can they make stuff break that still leaves the consumer having enough faith in the product to go out and buy another one. It was so intentional. But stuff cannot break fast enough to keep this arrow afloat. So there's also perceived obsolescence. Now perceived obsolescence convinces us to throw away stuff that is still perfectly useful. How do they do that? Well, they change the way the stuff looks. So if you bought your stuff a couple of years ago, everyone can tell that you haven't contributed to this arrow recently. And since the way we demonstrate our value is contributing to this arrow, it can be embarrassing. Like I've had the same fat white computer monitor on my desk for five years. My coworker just got a new computer. She has a flat, shiny, sleek monitor. It matches her computer, it matches her phone, even her pen stand. She looks like she's driving in Spaceship Central and I, I look like I've got a washing machine on my desk. Fashion is another prime example of this. Have you ever wondered why women's shoe heels go from fat one year to skinny the next to fat to skinny? It's not because there's some debate about which heel structure is the most healthy for women's feet. It's because wearing fat heels in a skinny heel year shows everybody that you haven't contributed to that era as recently, so you're not as valuable as that person in skinny heels next to you, or more likely in some ad. It's to keep us buying new shoes. Advertisements and media in general plays a big role in this. Each of us in the U.S. is targeted with over 3,000 advertisements a day. We see more advertisements in one year than people 50 years ago saw in a lifetime. And if you think about it, what's the point of an ad except to make us unhappy with what we have? So 3,000 times a day, we're told our hair is wrong, our skin is wrong, our clothes are wrong, our furniture is wrong, our car is wrong, we are wrong, but it can all be made right if we just go shopping. Media also helps by hiding all of this and all of this. So the only part of the materials economy we see is the shopping. The extraction, production, and disposal all happens outside of our field of vision. So in the US, we have more stuff than ever before, but polls show that our national happiness is actually declining. Our national happiness peaked in the 1950s, the same time that this consumption mania exploded. Hmm, interesting coincidence. I think I know why. We have more stuff, but we have less time for the things that really make us happy. Friends, family, leisure time. We're working harder than ever. Some analysts say we have less leisure time than any time since feudal society. And do you know what the two main activities are that we do with the scant leisure time we have? Watch TV and shop. In the US, we spend three to four times as many hours shopping as our counterparts in Europe do. So we're in this ridiculous situation where we go to work, maybe two jobs even, and we come home and we're exhausted. So we plop down on our new couch and watch TV, and the commercials tell us, you suck, so you gotta go to the mall to buy something to feel better, and then you gotta go to work more to pay for the stuff you just bought. So you come home and you're more tired, so you sit down and you watch more TV, and it tells you to go to the mall again, and we're on this crazy work, watch, spend treadmill, and we could just stop.
we could probably all just go home now. And then I could tell Greg, yeah, it was kind of fun, kept it a little light. All right, most of us can probably find ourselves somewhere in that video, right? Maybe we're the kind that has to keep up with the latest styles, fat heels, skinny heels, fat heels, skinny heels, got a whole closet full. Maybe we're someone who feels indicted for not keeping up with the latest styles. And so we always are the one, the girl in the middle that everyone's pointing at and laughing. Maybe that's who we are. Maybe you buy a lot of junk that you don't need and it ends up in the landfill a little while later. Maybe you're working two jobs to keep up with the stuff or to pay off the stuff that you bought 10 years ago. So we're going to think about the story of stuff. And again, storyofstuff.com because you've got to see the whole thing and then the wealthy landowner parable. We're gonna look at those two things and I'm gonna make three points out of those two sources. And the first one is that I'm a little bit afraid that people who call themselves Christians may be even more enamored of popular culture and materialism than the general population. I'll tell you a couple stories. One, Donald Miller, one of my favorite authors, tells the story of going into a secular music store and with his friend and they did an experiment to see how quick can we find an ugly person on the front of a music CD at a secular music store? And so I think it took them like one second. And we won't name any names, but you can all picture them. There's some crazy artists out there. And so they really quick found an ugly person on the front of a CD. And then they went over to the Christian music store. And they wanted to see how long will it take us to find an ugly person on the front of a Christian music CD. And they could not find an ugly person on the front of a Christian CD. ABC News Online begins a story this way. Christian rock has a not entirely undeserved reputation as the least cool music on earth. So I wonder if there's some compensation going on. Least cool music on earth, well let's at least put really, really attractive people on the front and then maybe nobody will notice what's on the inside. There's a website called coolchristianfriends.com and it says on there, welcome to Cool Christian Friends where cool Christians meet, fellowship and have fun with other cool Christians 24-7 worldwide. It includes cool gear where you can buy clothes that cool Christians would wear. Okay, I'm reading through this and going, if you have to say the word cool like every other word, you're probably not cool. I mean, that's just how it works, okay? Here's what I think is going on. I think that if we follow Jesus, we're just a tiny bit afraid that that automatically makes us dorks. I think that that's what we're afraid of. I think there's, there's a definitely an element out there that we're automatically not cool if we have this Christian faith. And in our culture, it is more important to be cool than almost anything else. It's more important to be cool uh, than be a person of integrity, than to be a loyal person, than to be an honest person, than to be a person who's in healthy relationships. Being cool is way important. Why are adults afraid to talk to groups of teenagers because teenagers are cool, they represent cool, and if you walk up near them, you might realize that you're old, and your clothes are ugly, and you don't look very good. And plus, they might say all of those things to you, so we just kind of avoid them, right? <laughs> Everybody wants to be cool. And if identifying as a Christian makes you uncool, and suspect the truly cool and popular people out there, then we have a dilemma. Because we know that our Christian faith requires that we live out and talk about the good news. But we also know that we have to be cool. And so what are we gonna do? We overcompensate. We try to copy 
popular culture. Actually, we try to outdo popular culture, I think. And so if Christian rock is dorky, then we're only gonna put incredibly attractive people on the front of our CDs. The world gives us boy bands with gelled hair. Let's have Christian boy bands with even more gelled hair. Then we'll have girl bands, and then we'll have Christian girl bands that are even more attractive. We'll have theme parks, and then let's have Christian theme parks. We'll have yellow pages, and then Christian yellow pages. And then we're gonna do a sermon series all about the Survivor TV show. I've heard several of these. And then how about now we do American Idol, and then Fear Factor. How about America's Top Model? Anybody? The world does punk. We do Christian punk. The world gives us Aerosmith. We give them Petra. Okay, we try to give them Petra. As though the most important thing in the world, even for people who follow Jesus, who identify themselves as followers of Christ, even for us, we have to be cool. It's the most important thing in the world. And here's what we do. We rationalize this by saying, well, we have to be cool or the world won't hear our message. See, if we walk around wearing the wrong size heels, right? If we walk around wearing ungelled hair, if we walk around looking unattractive and out of touch and out of step, then nobody will hear the message of Jesus. And so we have to spend and shop and consume at a rate even greater than the world around us because we wanna tell people about Jesus. And I just think that's a load of garbage. I completely reject that. Because it, you know, there is a truth that we wanna be able to tell people the good news of Jesus. But the reality is that I don't think most of the time that's why we're spending bazillion dollars on stuff, and I don't think that's why Christians are at the greatest debt level of any segment of society in terms of credit card debt. I don't think that's because we wanna make sure we're cool enough to talk about Jesus. I think it's because we're addicted to stuff instead of addicted to Jesus. That's what I think is going on. We're gonna talk more about that. So I'm not hitting you too hard, right? Are we okay? Let's, let's laugh a little bit together. <laughs> Okay, how about we do this? I'll confess, because then you guys can all sit back and judge me, so that'll be good. <laughs> yes, someone in the front says. Okay, in 1997, maybe, when I started preaching here at Woodland Hills, maybe in 97 or 98, I don't know how many of you have been around that long, I preached a sermon here at Woodland Hills Church. I hope you weren't here for it. I was talking about the topic of Christian community, and I was making the point that when we go deep as Christians, we can say anything to one another, and it's safe. We've created a, a context where we can really speak the truth and love to one another. Well, here's the, one of the illustrations I used. One of the illustrations I used was about my best friend, Chris, and that I was sharing this story about her in an ugly sweater. And I said, Chris and I have gone so deep and we love each other so much that I could say to her, Chris, your sweater is very ugly and you need to stop wearing it. <laughs> so I would just like to confess that I've contributed to this whole deal. Chris is here today. I'm not gonna make her stand up, but I apologize for that whole thing. In fact, if she had the sweater, still, I would be wearing it right now. <laughs> How about a different point than Christian community means you can tell your friends when their clothes are ugly? How about a better point being Christian community means affirming your friends for not being greedy shopaholics who are in debt up to their eyeballs? That would be a better illustration, okay? I'm not saying that people who follow Jesus have to wear ugly sweaters. I'm saying that many Christians, again, have become so obsessed with this idea of being cool that they evaluate everything against a set of values that are completely antithetical to what Jesus taught, to the point where their identity is grounded in what they wear and what their friends wear. Now, I know for sure that some of you are sitting out there and have been sitting there for 10 minutes looking at me and going, what is she wearing? What is that shirt? Okay, who has seriously thought, that does not look like a shirt she would wear? 
Okay. <laughs> Thank you. There's a few of you. This shirt has shoulder pads. Okay. I haven't worn shoulder pads in like 20 years. And I'm not wearing this to make some sort of silly point. I'm wearing this to say, I have to think about when I get up here, can I, can I just rest in my identity as a, a healthy person, as a person in Christ, or do I have to obsess about what I'm wearing? And then when you come in, do you have to say, wow, I don't think I'll listen to her because she's wearing shoulder pads for crying out loud. That is so not cool. I thought she was cool, and it totally turns out she's not cool. I would like to say, though, that when you par carry your purse, it's a really cool thing. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a really uh, helpful element to shoulder pads. I'm thinking about getting back into it. Okay, so after the first service, a guy comes up to me and shakes my hand. He goes, you know, usually I come in and you're preaching and I say, oh, there's that young Sandra Unger preaching again. He goes, so I was glad to see that you were wearing an older outfit because when you got up there, I thought, oh, now she's looking a little older. What happened? <laughs> It was all I could do not to run over to Target and buy something else to wear. So now I'm old and not cool and wearing an ugly shirt and shoulder pads and I'm completely out of date. Will you listen to me anyway? <laughs> it's kind of funny, but you have to admit it's a little bit tragic, right? It's tragic. Who even decides what's cool? Who gets to decide that? We're gonna have a little lesson called the social construction of reality. This means that people in a given culture decide what's cool, what's good, what's bad, what's not cool, and that everybody else kinda of has to follow along. And it's not really based on anything. It's not part of the foundation of the universe that skinny heels are good and fat heels are good or they even need heels or they even need to wear shoes, right? It's not written in the DNA of the universe. That's something that our society just decides, and it's very arbitrary, and it's actually driven by market forces, as you saw in the story of stuff. You have to keep the materials flowing. We've got to keep the economy running, and so you need to buy fat heels, skinny heels, fat heels, skinny heels. And God forbid that we'd be wearing fat heels in a skinny-heeled year. And Christians, just like everyone else, and maybe even more so, accept these rules wholeheartedly and go along with it. But what I have to say today is that Jesus actually came along 2,000 years ago and launched an entirely new culture. He was creating a community that had a radically different view of things, a radically different way of life. It had values and practices and beliefs that were antithetical to what people were saying and doing at the time. It was very appealing to people. It was so different. He didn't go around to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Roman government and say, now what do you guys think about this? Because I'm gonna tweak it a little bit to fit the needs of my kingdom. What he did was he totally and wholesale rejected what was going on and launched something that was the total opposite and invited people then and invites people now to be a part of it. And what it is is a kingdom based on loving God and loving others, including our enemies, serving humanity, caring for the poor, giving hope to the broken, forgiving even when it's hard. And here's why the deal about needing to be cool in order to impact our world is not the right approach. It's backwards. We don't impact our world by trying to look like them and hoping they think we're cool enough that they'll listen to us. We impact our world by going and saying, look, I'm loving people that nobody thinks I should love. I'm forgiving people that no one thinks I should love. I'm in healthy relationships with people. I have joy, I have contentment, I have a peace that passes understanding even when things aren't going well. And that's what people around say, wow, I wanna be part of it. They don't say, oh, you have really cool shoes. Do you follow Jesus? What are we thinking? 
The church is not following Jesus' strategy because here's what Jesus did. He went to a broken community. He loved them in spite of everything, even when it was hard. He showed them a new way of life that was good news and then he walked with them into that way of life. And here's what we do sometimes. We go into a broken community. We feel insecure if we're not as cool as them. We find out what they like to do. We create a Christian version of it that even if the original thing is antithetical to the Christian message, and then we see if we can get them to also like our version. Okay, now that's an overstatement, but unfortunately, it's not too far from the truth. I remember being at Kensington Community Church where I worked a little while ago, and they like to do this popular culture thing, and they've had some good results, but I was standing on the stage kind of moderating this little deal they were doing based on the TV show Fear Factor. And so they had a tub up on the stage, like a big, huge fish tank, and it had golf balls in the bottom, and then it had leeches swimming around in it. And we were giving $20 bills to people who would, could get the most golf balls out. This is during the church service. <laughs> and I was standing up there literally going, what am I doing up here? And what does this have to do with Jesus? And I need to go back to Woodland Hills Church because I just don't get this. Because it's the deal that we just borrow from popular culture and try to make it look like something that the world would want to tack Jesus onto. All right, here's what I would like. I would like to have stumbled on this video called The Story of Stuff and found that people who love Jesus made it. Not only because they care about the planet, but because they live according to a totally different set of rules that says we don't define ourselves by our stuff. That's what I would like to have happened. Instead, it was made without Jesus. And now followers of Jesus are getting excited about it and getting on board. I found out about it from followers of Jesus. But now it's cool to be green, right? It's cool to live simply. A lot of Hollywood stars are living green and living simply. Jesus modeled care for the planet and simple living 2,000 years ago. And now the church is discovering this through the influence of secular culture. There is something very backwards about that. Jesus was a visionary, not a reactionary. And we need to reclaim that visionary status and stop reacting, stop defining, stop evaluating ourselves over and against popular culture. We need to reclaim that status. And we need to set new and transforming trends in our world that have nothing to do with clothing or appearances or hair gel or American Idol or ugly sweaters or anything like that. That's not the deal. So point one, Christians, I'm a little bit afraid, are more enamored of popular culture even than the world around us. Point two, we don't want to admit it, but we often, I think, worship our stuff more than we worship Jesus. Now, I have been, this is a terrible passage to have to wear around for a few weeks. I know Greg has shared as he's preached these last two hard-hitting sermons that he was having a hard time because he had to live in it six days and then come and deliver it. And this is what I've been feeling. This is a very, very hard point. And this idea that we worship our stuff more than Jesus really gets to the heart of this parable of the wealthy landowner. Now, he lived in an agrarian society, and so his excess was in grain, and so he built bigger barns and put his grain in there. But our excess is not grain, and it's why it's easy sometimes to dismiss it, because it's like, well, I don't have silos of grain. I'm not building bigger barns. So what would Jesus say today? What would the parable involve today? What are our excesses today? What do we put in our barns today? Well, what about shoes? I really like shoes. I'd like to roll around in this pile of shoes. <laughs> it's not like you read the passage and preach a message and you go, oh good, well now I'm done with that. It's a challenge all the time and you have to identify what's your thing that's pulling you away from being grounded in the message of Christ. How about money? Our tendency today is to store away money 
and our security then is in the money. So we don't, aren't excited about next year or feel good about next year because we know that Jesus is working in and through us. We're excited about next year because we know that we have enough stored up that no matter what happens, we're safe. So our identity, our security, our safety is coming from something other than Christ. Now, I'm not saying don't have a savings account, but I'm saying wrestle with this issue of where your security, where your identity is coming from. How about cars? I'm thinking that Jesus might have told a parable about building bigger garages instead of barns if he told the parable today. Why is it that garages today are bigger than houses were 50 years ago? A family of five could live in most of the suburban garages that I see and that I have owned in the past. What about food? Pantries full of cans, hundreds and hundreds. Somebody's been to Sam's Club here. Hundreds and hundreds of cans of diced tomatoes, just in case, and you feel secure because you know that no matter what happens, you can whip together a lot of spaghetti sauce. <laughs> and here's something that just really made me mad. I must have been in a bad mood that day, but I walked into a store and I saw this. What is this? It's $14.99 for crying out loud. It's two frogs, plastic, with a rake. I don't even know what you would do with this. I had to take a picture of it though, because this <laughs> it's representative of the many ways we can waste our money in the United States of America. And I think the reason it made me so mad is because I went into the store and there were rows and rows and rows of plastic bunny rabbits wearing clothing, plastic ducks, plastic deer, bumblebees. It was terrifying actually. And you can go and buy them all and you bring them home and put them in your yard and then dump them in the landfill in September. That's what's going on. Now, we know that owning cars and shoes and having money and having food or even plastic frogs is not a sin. Jesus didn't get mad at the landowner for having food. He got after him for stockpiling food without thinking of others. And here's that nasty God of individualism that Greg has been talking about. Our culture tells us that we can have as many shoes and as many cars and as many plastic frogs as we can afford. You manage your own money, you manage your debt. If you have a good job and want to indulge in plastic frogs, fill the barn up with them. Go ahead. Who's it really hurting? And that's the question. If we step outside of our individualism, this kind of spending and shopping and hoarding does hurt people. And I'm going to get very real about who it hurts. This slide represents a neighbor of mine named Rhonda. And Rhonda is a single mom with five kids who lives exactly 2.1 miles from this building. And I found out a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, that the only food in the house was ramen noodles. That was it. And so the kids and mom were all living on ramen noodles. And there's only so much you can do with ramen noodles. Now I know that none of you would go and buy 10 plastic frogs if you knew that Rhonda and her kids needed food, right? Nobody would do that. But the truth for all of us is that we know that people need food. We know that people need food here in the Twin Cities. We know that people need food in Africa and Myanmar. And we can easily find out that 78% of the kids in the pain failing neighborhood that starts diagonally across the intersection here live below the poverty line. But I think three things are happening. Number one, we don't know Rhonda and her kids, and we don't know any other hungry people either. And that's a whole other sermon. Number two, we're truly, in every sense of the word, addicted to stuff. Without intervention, we might lack the ability to even stop buying more stuff and redirect our resources. It actually is an addiction. 
And number three, we've bought into the social construction that our money is ours to do with as we please and it's not really our problem if others don't have enough. And this social construction emerged with the nation of the United States 2,000 years almost after Jesus came and preached a completely different message than that. Yet somehow followers of Jesus have bought into this idea that my money is mine to do with as I want. That is called a social construction. That is not the way lots of people around the, United States, around the world even live today, where people realize there's a communal responsibility. And so the Church of Jesus Christ has bought into this idea that our money is ours, stay away from me, it's not your business what I do with my money, even though it's completely antithetical to Jesus' message, completely antithetical to the entire Bible. But somehow we live in the society, we're surrounded by 3,000 ads a day, everybody else is doing it, and we don't realize when you decide to follow Jesus, he actually has something to say about your stuff. Now here's some good news so we can breathe for a minute. Um, Woodland Hills does way better than most. These are messages that Greg's been delivering for years and years. And we're not all perfect, but we've made steps. I brought Rhonda and her kids several bags of groceries when I found out she only had ramen noodles from the food pantry right here in Woodland Hills Church. So I say thank you for that. And I told her, and I tell all my neighbors who I use the food shelf with, not to be ashamed, because I know that a lot of the food that was donated and that's sitting right up over there on the second floor was donated by people who've been where Rhonda is right now. You've been there, and you donate because you know what it's like to struggle with that. And so people have big hearts. So it's not an issue that we all are horrible losers, that we don't suck like the TV on the thing says. That's not the message. The message is that we still have ways to go, and let's not forget about it, and let's do it together. So in the midst of us all feeling convicted, we can celebrate this a little bit, and it really gets to the heart of being rich toward God. I don't think he just meant putting money in the bucket when he talked about being rich toward God. He meant putting our resources into the things that are close to his heart, that were close to the heart of Jesus. Jesus would ask us to sacrifice our plastic frogs, our shoes, our cars, our money for a greater good, for those in need, for the cause of justice, for the sick, the prisoner, the oppressed, for anybody in need. So the second question I'm asking today is, do you sometimes worship stuff more than you worship Jesus? Third point, we may be willing to acknowledge that greed and consumerism are sins, but we mostly think they're tiny sins and so it's okay. And I think actually that greed and consumerism are two of the biggest sins and two of the biggest things that keep us from following Jesus. Now how many of you here were here to get your ears boxed by Greg last week? Were you here for the, the story that he told about the truck driver? Okay, I'll review it a little bit. Last week, Greg explained the dangers of thinking that following Jesus or getting saved are just agreeing with a list of truths, a set of beliefs without any real transformation behind it. And he used the story of this truck driver. And this was a story where Greg was, this was 20 or 30 years ago, and he went into a truck stop, and he got into a conversation with the guy at the counter who just loved to talk about himself and loved to brag. And he was talking about how he lives with two women back home and then he's got a couple other women across town and they don't know about each other. And then on his truck routes, he has women all along the line. So he has this great life where there's a woman in every city and woohoo! And he gets to do drugs with them too. And so he told Greg all about the drugs. And so after going on and on, Greg says, well, he ran out of stuff to talk about himself. So he said, well, what do you do? And Greg said... Well, well, I'm actually a seminary student and I pastor a church on the side. And without missing a beat, he said, well, then I'm a brother in Christ. And he talked about how when he was five years old, he'd walked an aisle and agreed to a list of truths that they put before him and said a little prayer. 
But now that he was an adult, he was a carnal Christian, he called himself. And that means that Jesus was a savior, but not his Lord. But he knows he's getting into heaven because when he was five, he walked the aisle. And so what Greg was doing last week was challenging this idea that Jesus can be your savior, but not your Lord. By telling the story of this truck driver who said Jesus was a savior, but that sex and drugs were his Lord's. Now, most of us probably got Greg's point in the story. We could see how walking the aisle at the age of five and then living against everything Jesus teaches doesn't really work. But what if instead of a truck driver involved in a bunch of illicit affairs and drugs, Greg had described someone who talked endlessly about all of his recent purchases, his boats, his cars, his clothes, his stockpile of money. What if that had been the story? What if this guy had gone on and on and on about the fact that he had five houses and that he actually had to have six storage units all over the place to accommodate all his extra stuff. He was just bursting in stuff. So my question today is, is it okay to have Jesus as your savior and stuff as your Lord any more than it's okay to have Jesus as your savior and sex and drugs as your Lord? My fear is that we would see this guy as greedy and selfish and needing to work on that a little bit, but we wouldn't think it was that big of a deal, whereas the guy with drugs and women, we're willing to just throw him out of the kingdom altogether. And I want you to listen to last week's sermon if you haven't heard that and you have more questions about it, because it was a really profound point that Greg was making. The reality is that the Bible has far more to say about sins of greed and not caring for the poor than it does about sexual immorality, far more. And there's many passages where the two are stuck together in a list of things that don't belong in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.3, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. But since most of us probably aren't living like the truck driver, and we're not doing cocaine every day, and since most of us probably do struggle with greed and consumption and materialism, we've decided that greed is not such a big deal, even though you can't make that case through the life of Jesus or through the Bible. You can't make the case because Jesus sure thought it was a big deal. And according to the Bible, we should be far more afraid of being wealthy than of being poor. Jesus shows preferential concern for the poor and he showers the rich with warnings. So the third point just causes us to ask ourselves: do we think that greed isn't such a big deal? Have we just been so immersed in it in 3,000 messages a day that we forgot that it was one of the big things that Jesus came to confront? So now we need to talk about application. And how we talk about the application of this is critical. Because we can't start pointing fingers at each other and telling everybody how we should be spending money. And what I wanna say first is that there is good news here. Because for those of us who have credit card debt, who feel indicted by our lack of good clothes, who feel like we're on a treadmill that we can never get off because we have to keep up and look cool and stay in style, the good news is you don't have to live that life. That's one of the th- good news that Jesus brought. Was it your identity isn't founded there? That's not what your life is to be about. You can free yourself from that. And so the good news is, get off it. Yeah. However, is it that easy? Somebody tell me. No. At the end of the video, Annie Leonard says, you can just stop. And the person just hops right off. And it's like, oh good, well that solves that. But how many of us have tried to stop? How many of us have said, I'm not going to use my credit card for a month? How many of you said, I'm not going to buy anything except needs for the next month or day even and found yourself having failed a short time later? 
It's not just a rational decision where you accept what I'm saying or what Jesus said and think, oh good, now I'm magically free from my desire to shop and be cool. Because I think it really is an addiction and the important thing to know is that this is a spiritual problem and not a physical problem. It's not just about your stuff, it's about your heart, even more about your heart. And so it's gonna be a journey to break through, it's gonna be a journey to break the addiction if that's where you are. And here's the journey that I think we need to be on on this. The first thing is that we really need to decide if we're more concerned about owning stuff and being cool or if we're more concerned about following Jesus even if it means social rejection as Greg warned two weeks ago in his sermon about hypocrisy. Because until that gets settled, the question of whether you really wanna do that, any effort that you make to change your behavior ends up looking like hypocrisy. So if your heart hasn't changed, you still want your identity to be found in buying and owning and wearing cool stuff, but you say, but I won't buy any cool stuff for two months. Because then my clothes, aren't clothes still usually in style at least two months later? So you can change your external behavior about money and you can still look cool and you cannot even have touched your heart. And that's called hypocrisy, when the external and the internal don't line up. So yes, give some of your stuff away, take some steps that way, but realize that this isn't really a physical problem, this is a spiritual problem. So the second thing is, if we decide that we're gonna make that decision, that we're gonna not worry about being cool and owning stuff, we're gonna instead worry about following Jesus and doing what he said, then you run into number two, a problem that says, well, where are the lines? Tell me the rules of this new way of following Jesus. This new way of following Jesus that's 2,000 years old. This is not really new news, by the way. This has always been the message. And here's what you wanna know. Well, how much should I give then? Let me write this down. Everybody write this down. And how much should I keep? And then, how much am I allowed to spend on a house? And, uh, and can I buy plastic frogs ever? And actually, how can I buy anything if I know Rhonda and her five kids only have ramen noodles? And if you take that approach, then you end up in legalism, which is another thing Greg's been warning about. Because instead of it being about Jesus and your heart being transformed and finding your identity and serving humanity and in worshiping God, you end up finding your identity still, still, still in the stuff because you now you have a list of the stuff and the rules about the stuff and what you do with the stuff and what stuff you give away and what stuff you keep and what stuff you're allowed to buy and what stuff you're not. Your identity is still in the stuff. You've just made a lot of rules about the stuff and your heart hasn't changed. So there's a lot of pitfalls here. The point of making the first decision to say I wanna follow Jesus and not worry about stuff is that then Jesus enters in and helps you with the second decision which is what do I do with my stuff? And I can't tell you that. But, number three, you can have a community that will walk with you through that. If you just decide to take some of these steps, but you don't enter into the conversation with others, then you can end up in individualism, another ism, where you're just sitting by yourself and saying, what do I do with my stuff? This is hard decisions. And you're all by yourself making these decisions. And that's not how God intended it. Now, we're not gonna put your spreadsheet, your budget spreadsheet up on the screens and then all vote on it. I don't know, can Joe buy a new house? Can Sandra get some red shoes? Should we vote? Okay, we're not gonna do that, but what about inviting a few people into that journey with you? Now what if I said to you, what are you going to do about your money? You have been screwing up and you need to make some changes. How does that feel? Oh, kind of shaming and condemning. And from Romans 8.1 we know that there is no shame there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not here to leave being shamed. Now what if I said this instead? What are we gonna do about our money? 
and the challenge of following Jesus. How are we going to do this journey together? How are we going to use our resources to impact the neighborhoods around us that need help? How can we work together to kick our addiction to stuff? What are we going to do? Now, for me, that leads me into a good place, a place where I have a vision of walking with some friends into this journey of saying, what do I do about my stuff? And then sharing the stories of struggle and sharing the failures when we give in and the victories when we don't. And that's where Jesus is, in the middle of a community, working together to follow along in his teachings and his life. And here's what's at stake. Remember when the person in the video hopped out of the chaos? You could just stop and hopped out. A better image of that, instead of them just hopping out and looking all happy about it, a better image would have been them like rolling in the mud and having people kicking them a little bit and crying all the time and looking all disheveled and wearing ugly clothes with shoulder pads. I mean, it would have been a much messier leap. But the reality is when you make that leap, you find Jesus there in a way that you've never experienced him. And my family's had this a little bit because five years ago we leaped from the suburbs into the city and it, and it did involve rolling around and feeling kicked a little bit and feeling really dumb. Um, my kids are, when they were probably six or eight years old, I told them about planned obsolescence. I mean, my kids have been hammered with this, but living in the suburbs most of their lives, it was concepts. And then we all kind of rolled into the city together and said, wow, we're kind of ignorant people. And it's messy, but you find Jesus there in a way that I have never experienced him before. Because all along when we were shopping and spending and consuming and then working like a dog to pay it off, I think Jesus was saying, hey, I have something better for you. But Jesus doesn't usually really shove us and push us. He speaks in a still, small voice. And his voice is drowned out sometimes by the TV and by the songs at the mall and by all of the chaos, the 3,000 ads that we see every day. But he's there, and he's calling to me, and he's calling to you. Not just to deal with your stuff, which is an external thing, but to deal with your heart, which is a really important internal transforming thing. And enter into this journey, he's saying, where you really end up totally living out that life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And this is good news. This is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news that is Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the transforming work that he is willing and able to do in us. And we thank you that maybe today we can take a step of courage away from defining ourselves by our stuff and into this reality that is the kingdom of God, where we think more about others than ourselves, where we share our resources, where we give until it hurts, where we make sacrifices for one another in community, and where we also learn to receive. And I thank you that you walk with us on that journey, that you don't just shove us off the cliff alone, but you're there every step. And I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we would make some changes. I pray that we would walk together and we would honor you by our choices. And I pray these things in the powerful and the loving and the challenging name of Jesus. Amen. If you need prayer, there'll be people to pray with you up front. Thank you and have a great Sunday.